Hi, my name is Gary Myers. And I'm Joe Fontenot. And we're the hosts of the Answering the Call podcast. And this is the podcast where we talk to people who are answering God's call. Today, our guest is Kevin Brown. He heads the prison program at NOBTS and discusses some of the deeper problems he's seen both in society and in how we handle prisoners. So, here's Kevin. So you have a U.S. Marshal's badge in your office. I do. Um, so I watch TV, and I know that only two people have those, the people that take them and the people that are given them. So a few years ago, we were honored, my organization and I were honored for some work we had done in the community, some some quasi-law enforcement work. We had done a lot to reduce crime in, in a neighbor, single neighborhood. And I came to the attention of the U.S. Marshals, who flew me to Washington and honored me with uh, an award called the Citizen of the Year Award. So I was a Citizen of the Year for the United States of America, according wow. to the U.S. Marshals. Wow. And they gave me a, a little plaque with my own U.S. Marshals badge, which I can't use because if I ever pull it out, I'll go to jail. But <laughs> I have the badge in my it's, office. It's too, that's unfortunate, but uh, that's fun. Um, so you, you've had a very interesting career. You have, uh, you're in a band, Yep. right? You lived in Chicago for a while where you got your um, BA in psychology from Wheaton. Right. And uh, Masters of Social Work from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Right. Which is also where you were in a band. Yep. You played. Yep. Bass. Bass, yep. Yes. I was a bass player. Okay, good. Uh, we trust you then. And um, there's, there's proof. There's proof. <laughs> Actually, I think I've seen proof on YouTube. So yeah, yeah. is this one of those things where people um, can go look this up and watch, or are you... You're like, let the past be the past. Yeah, let the past be All the past. All right, fine. Let the past but be the past. I will say this. <clears throat> I had a, a, a little brush with fame. So the guy who produced that video was a student at Columbia College. It was an MTV video. Mm. The guy who produced the video was a Columbia University Film School in Chicago, a student. And he produced this video and then went on to become Spielberg's director um, for wow. all his movies. So this is the guy, Janusz Kaminski, who is world-famous for being Spielberg's uh, cinematographer. And uh, we... That's we amazing. ...shared the Spielberg's cinematographer. So you're like Facebook friends now, or is that... No, I don't no. think he would know who I am. Okay. Well, he probably would know who I'm I sure am. He if, yeah, I'm sure he would. I'm sure first project. Sure, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so since then, though, you've, you've been down here. You're from here. You're from New Orleans mm-hmm. originally. I am. Um, and so you are back here. You're teaching now um, social work right. here at NOBTS. Um, but you got your, your PhD and a different master's from uh, UNO, also here right. at University of New Orleans, uh, in urban studies. Right. Um, so tell me, um, why did you go into urban studies? So I grew up the son of an urban minister, back when urban ministry was something that nobody did. In fact, they, my father was a good preacher, and suggested that he be on TV. And he mm. said, I don't want to be on TV. He said, I, what I really want to do is to, to preach the gospel to the poor, because that's what Scripture calls us to do. Mm. Several times he was called to big suburban churches, and he decided that he didn't want to go. He wanted to stay in the middle of the inner city. And so deep within my heart was this love for the city of New Orleans, was a love for cities as a whole, and was a, a desire to understand what makes cities tick and, um, and why cities are the way they are. Mm. And so I went back, you know, it was a choice of, of either a PhD in sociology or a PhD in urban studies, and urban studies made a whole lot more sense to me given my urban thrust. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, who would you say are some of your heroes? Well, besides my dad, um, there are two people in the urban ministry movement that I think of as the heart and the head of urban ministry. The heart first. So there's a great civil rights leader in Jackson, Mississippi, named John Perkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, John and my dad were very, very good friends. And so at, at age 12, I read my first John Perkins book, and I was impacted by this man's dedication to serving Jesus in a radical way that meant um, being beat up and thrown in prison and trumped up charges just for being black and for attempting to register people to vote. Um, He was a man who was able to embrace the gospel in one hand and the social issues of the day in the other in a way that we seem to have lost in our current you know, our current way of thinking theologically where it's either the gospel or the social issues, he was able to lead somebody to Christ and register them to vote with equal import, believing mm-hmm. that um, a transformed life is the most important thing, but that a transformed situation was important as well. And so he was a guy who who literally was beaten and almost killed mm-hmm. um, here in the United States, in Jackson, Mississippi, for being a black man who had the audacity of enacting the gospel in a radical mm-hmm. way. You can see how that would impact mm-hmm. a kid. And, and, and you knew him through your dad. He came and stayed at our house all yeah. the time, and we would go visit him in Jackson, Mississippi. Fascinating. So, uh, knew him from a very early age all the way mm-hmm. through my life. His wife was from New Orleans. Mm. The second is the head. The head is a guy named Ray Bakke. Mm. Ray is a guy who is able to, to place the urban ministry context in a, a, I don't know, a a pedagogical or or PhD level, Mm -hmm. right? He thinks deeply about things and is able to explicate explicate what people think of or what people feel in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. He can explain it with written words. Um, he's a deep, deep thinker on a variety of subjects, reads a book a day every day of his life. A uh, book a day? A book a day. How does a person even read a book a day? You just read faster and differently. Okay. It's like you do when you, do, when you get a PhD. You yeah, read right. a book a day when you get a PhD. Ooh, that's rough. So he's a brilliant, brilliant thinker who's also done boots on the ground. But he situates the urban ministry movement or the Christian community development movement in a way that's um, philosophical, theological, and well-constructed in terms of its arguments. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I endeavored to become a combination of the two, a man who did urban ministry um, and a man who was able to uh, write and think deeply. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those two have deeply Mm -hmm. formed my life, in addition to my my parents who were, Mm -hmm. you know, sacrificed everything to move into the inner city and Mm -hmm. um, including, you know, placing their kids in harm's way because they, they recognized that this is what God had called them to do. What did what did that mean in harm's way? Well, so yeah. when I was in first grade, I got a new bike, drove it around the block of my house, and um, I just learned to ride this bike. And I fell off, and a guy walked up and picked me up and put me on the bike, and then pushed me over again and stole my bike. <laughs> and another day, there had been some race riots in town. Uh, this is in the '60s in New Orleans, and somebody threw a brick in my face as a kid. And so we were literally harmed. Uh, and another time, somebody called up and wanted to talk to my dad, but my dad wasn't home. So instead of making the death threat to my dad, he made the death threat to me, the 11-year-old. 
So in harm's way, you know, psychologically and physically. How did you deal with that as a 10 and 11 year old? Well, you know, it's only with the the benefit of adult hindsight that you can see that that was unusual. And when people grow up in poverty, they don't know it's poverty. They just mm-hmm. know it's their life situation. So growing up in that context, I, I had no clue that it was unusual. This was just the way life was. Mm-hmm. And so I just adapted. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in retrospect, I think it was the most beneficial thing my parents ever did because I grew up in a way that was truly bicultural. Mm-hmm. I was able to think about issues from both sides, not just as an outsider looking in who purports to understand what he's seeing, but somebody who had really lived it firsthand. Um, And so I was really a missionary kid in a difficult environment at a really turbulent time in America's history and was, I think, deeply formed by that in a way that um, continues to reverberate today. What What time was this, just for context? So I was born in 61, Okay, and so, um, so from 70s. the 60s through the, <coughs> the mid-70s were, were he, he, mid to late sure. 70s were yeah. really turbulent times right. in, in New Orleans and in the Deep South. Is it possible, do you think, for outsiders to get involved and make a good impact? Yeah, I mean, you know, one doesn't have to be a heroin addict to counsel heroin addicts or a schizophrenic to counsel schizophrenics. In fact, one of the things that's been a real blessing to me is having outsiders come in and look at the same phenomenon that I'm seeing and ask me about it through their lens. I don't even know what I know Mm. because I know it intuitively, right? And folks that look at it from the outside can ask me questions or think about it differently or write, speak, preach, study the word differently than, than I do because they're seeing this phenomenon for the first time, something that I just accept as part of the human condition, they've never seen before. And that's hugely uh, beneficial in many ways. The problem comes when outsiders come in with a perspective that their background or their upbringing or Mm -hmm. the way they view the world is the superior view. So when short-term mission students come to the neighborhood and say, why do those people do that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if they just followed Jesus, they would live in the suburbs and have a two-car garage. And <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Right. That somehow our, right. our, our view of the world, our perspective on the world, our theological distinctives make us superior. Mm-hmm. When in reality, we just don't understand poverty. And mm-hmm. so we conflate good theology or a good Christian ethic with prosperity, that somehow God has blessed us financially and physically because we're following him. Mm-hmm. There's awesome Christians in the inner city that live in horrible trauma, that are poor as dirt, but that follow Jesus in a, in a radical way. Here's a great example. One day, a group of our um, short-term missionary students were knocking on doors, and they came to this one house where they knocked on the door, and it was a burned-out shell of a house, and they assumed nobody was home. But we told them to knock on every door, so they knocked on the door. And just as they were walking away, the door creaked open, and this elderly woman who with you know, arthritic hands and mm. could barely walk came to the door, and they said, in, in kind of a typical uh, blustery suburban way, we've come to tell you about Jesus. Right. And she sighed deeply and said, ah, oh, Jesus, mm. Jesus. And she sat down and proceeded to tell them about Jesus. 
and how the Lord kept her through the times when the crack addicts were dealing drugs in her alley and when they were smoking crack and burned her house down and how she, in the midst of having to hold on to the remaining belongings that she had, was living in a burned-out shell of a house. But she loved Jesus and went to church every Sunday and been following him all her life. And they came back with tears in their eyes. Mm. And they said, we were wrong. We assumed mm. that we had Jesus and Jesus was here all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes materialism acts as like an insulation, you know, against Jesus or other things that we come in contact with. Yeah. Um, there's a there's an old saying that short-term mission trips are usually for the people that go on them, yes. not for the people that, you know, they go to. How do you... So your church um, works... well. What church do you go to first? Tell so me. I go to Level Ground Community Church, which is an inner city church that meets in a low-rent apartment building uh, in the community space of a low-rent apartment building. It's a combination of black and white, <coughs> old and young. Um, we have senior citizens uh, alongside um, little children, mm. um, but of, of different races and, uh, and different backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, this is in Hollygrove? Mm-hmm. All right. This is the neighborhood that uh, Lil Wayne mm-hmm. comes out of, right, just for context. Um, so how do you prepare uh, mission teams when they come in for these kinds of experiences so that they get the most out of it, so that they do the most good? Yeah. How do you prepare them for, for a place like that? So we've morphed from just doing evangelism and service to being an educational institution. Mm. We bring in speakers to talk to our, um, to talk to our short-term mission students mm. about life in the inner city. And before they ever walk out into the street to do anything, we make sure that they understand the context that they're walking into. Mm. Make sure that they understand that Jesus is in this neighborhood, and that you're joining Jesus mm. instead of bringing Jesus. And that the brokenness you see is a condition of sin not unlike what you might see in your own home neighborhood, Mm -hmm. except for the complexion of the people and the size of their bank account is noticeably different. Mm. So you're walking into a black neighborhood. You assume that because it's a black neighborhood, it's a high crime neighborhood, which would be false because our neighborhood is actually safer than some of the surrounding white neighborhoods around us. Mm. You assume that the poverty you see is a sin condition uh, when really it's a financial condition And while it may be a sin condition, it's not the condition of the people that are living there, but a condition of the economy of America and our tendency towards greed and Mm self-aggrandizement, that we as a nation uh, glamorize and glorify uh, money and power and position. And so, therefore, we see people that are living in a condition like the inner city as being inferior and somehow being more prone to sin. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, it's the systems mm-hmm. that keep people in bondage, keep people in sin. And so in our church, we developed a mission statement that said we are agents of transformation, uh, servants of Jesus Christ, agents of transformation to people, mm-hmm. places, and systems, mm-hmm. recognizing that there is a systemic evil as well that's hidden that goes on for generations and that never gets addressed. What would be an example of this? Like, um, so that maybe somebody listening has never come across this idea. Race. So in America, we um, 
we have practiced from the 1800s, the, well, frankly, from the 1600s, when the first, 1615, when the first slave <coughs> arrived on American shores. We've practiced a kind of <clears throat> us and them mentality mm. where um, white skin is superior to black skin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have codified that into law, um, first with things like um, redlining, where we defined black neighborhoods as more dangerous and less worthy of uh, financing, and so we didn't offer loans to black families. Um, we defined it now in terms of mass incarceration, where we incarcerate um, black lives to a huge extent, to, to, to a, a vast extent. Let me back up. While there are more white people in prison, there are more white people in America. Mm -hmm. When you compare white people in America to the white ratios. people in prison, or black people in America to black people in prison, the ratios change dramatically. Mm -hmm where we see black neighborhoods as crime-ridden, dangerous places. So we've got this, this us-versus-them mentality which infiltrates our churches, it infiltrates our thinking, um, and it impacts the way we approach people of color. Mm. And that's systemic, and that's mm -hmm. a kind of evil that's greater than just the, the individual. So I may not practice personal racism, but every time I engage in in an act of, of, I don't know, of, of benefit, mm -hmm. you know, where I get benefited because of the color of my skin, instead of standing, uh, listening to a racist joke and not standing up, mm -hmm. or um, not speaking out about uh, the fact that powdered cocaine has a lower penalty than crack cocaine. And where's crack cocaine located? Mm -hmm. In black neighborhoods. And so people with with caught with, with crack hmm. cocaine get higher sentences than people with powdered cocaine, which only richer people use because it's more expensive. Um, so those kinds of things where, where evil is codified and enacted systemically. We think about our personal sins like lust and greed, um, but we rarely think about how lust becomes uh, the pornography industry right. or greed becomes a way of keeping poor people down on the farm. Or Wall Street ten years ago, as a case study. Yep. Yeah. So this is really interesting because I think a lot of people, um, partially, it's probably just our Western individualistic society. Yes. Number one, they look at it and say, "Well, you know, I'm not a racist. Yeah. I'm not doing anything wrong. Yep. But what we're talking about here is not necessarily just the the things you commit, the actions or thoughts that you have." but stepping into this wider world of a system yep. that has a problem. Yep. And so it's really not good enough, like you said, to just be quiet. Sometimes we have to right. be active in the other direction. Right. We have to use the privileges mm. that we have by virtue of our white skin to advocate for people that don't have those privileges, which means, like Jesus, who Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood mm. um, in, the, in the message Bible in John mm. chapter 1. We need to literally move into the neighborhood. We need to give up our privilege and serve in a radical way that says, not with words, I'm sorry, but with actions, we're sorry, and we want to make things right. What, um, what would you say to somebody who, who has a skeptical view of this. And I don't mean in like a cynical way. Yeah. I don't I don't even mean in a defensive way. Yeah. I mean just they've never been exposed to these ideas really. Um 
how would you have them test these ideas? How can they investigate this on their own? Where can they see this? And then what should they do to begin to do their part, you know, to get involved when they become convinced? It's an interesting question. So it's a double-barreled question. I won't remember both halves. I'll, I'll, I'll prompt you. Let me start with, the, <laughs> start with the first half. How do we find this out? How do we investigate it? Read the paper. Um, read the paper. Look at the news. And listen to the voices of those that are different from us. We, we inculcate ourselves mm. with a way of thinking. We read um, certain newspapers and certain news magazines. We listen to certain radio broadcasts. We watch certain news. And we get our news in a way that reifies our views. Sometimes we need to step out of our comfort zone and begin to look at the other half. What is, when Kanye West is angry, what is he angry about? Is he just an angry young man so we discount him? Or is he angry about something? When Black Lives Matter um, steps out on the street and says, that's enough, we don't want this anymore. What mm -hmm. are they really saying? Are they just a bunch of angry black folks and is it true that all lives matter or blue lives matter? Or is there something, because that is true, mm -hmm. but is there something that they're saying that we need to hear? Is there a perspective other than ours that has legitimacy? That's called um, becoming, in, in, the, in the black community, they call that becoming woke. When you, you awaken to the fact that this view of America that we hold, this desire to kind of hold on to the old values where it's not a view that was necessarily good for black folks. In, in the 1950s, mm -hmm. the Leave it to Beaver generation, the kind of thing that we all longed for, black folks were, were constantly being discriminated against for jobs, for housing, um, and were being pushed to the periphery, to the margins, to the inner cities, um, while white folks moved to the suburbs. And the very first suburbs had racially restrictive covenants that said black folks need not apply, they're not welcome mm -hmm. here. And so there were entire places entire suburbs, entire subdivisions where black folks were not welcome. Mm -hmm. Well, so when we talk about going back to those values, to that time in our history when, when it seemed so idyllic, was it really idyllic for all people? Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to rethink some of that. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard um, some people struggle with Black Lives Matter, specifically this group, okay, because they look at their, they go to their website, for instance, and they look at their value statement, and they say, well, they support um, L B. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. trying to say. They they support like a sexual identity that I think is fundamentally wrong. Therefore, I can't back them. Yep. What is well? What's so, next? So. It's easy to pick out the one thing that we disagree with and say and throw out the baby with the bathwater and miss the message of what's being said. And it's not just Black Lives Matter that are saying this. It's it's black theologians. I mean, I was at a, a SBC event this year mm. where black SBC pastors said we are not being treated right in the SBC. Was this the SBC event? The no, no, convention? no. This was a uh, this was an ERLC event. Oh, okay, uh, it was a, a kind of a closed door mm -hmm. meeting of of people that were really struggling with these issues. Um, it's not just these fringe groups that are saying this; it's our people mm. saying this that that we have this tendency to conflate 
theological conservative views with political conservative views. Mm -hmm. And so I was once at a pro-life event where the speaker said, if you're not a Republican, then you need to question whether you're a Christian. Well, there's something wrong with that. I mean, much of our black pastors, many of our black churches and our black pastors are Democrats. So does that mean that black folks are not Christians? Does that mean that these missionary Baptists and national Baptists and, um, and um, you know, AME churches, that these folks are not believers? No, they just think politically about the issues different than us. And maybe, just maybe, we need to think a little differently too. Mm -hmm. What would be a, a good starting point for, um, say, a pastor who's leading a congregation? Uh, it's an all-white church, and it maybe it has like 100 people or something. This is a very common scenario. Um, and maybe they have a black neighborhood next to them, or maybe they don't. Maybe they're just like in like Montana or mm -hmm. something, you know. Um, what is a practical first step or first way of moving into embracing uh, what you're talking about? The practical first step would be before you do anything, because whatever we do, if we don't do this first, we'll be paternalistic and we'll be demeaning hmm. any kind of service we offer. We first need to go humbly to uh, the black pastor in the neighborhood, sit down at lunch and say, help me understand, how can we serve you hmm. in a way that's meaningful and rich and relational? That good ministry is relational ministry. Our tendency is to assume things about poverty and then to bring our programs to fix a neighborhood when really maybe that fix is not what the neighborhood needs. Lao Tzu once said, a, a, a poet who wrote in, in um, Before Christ wrote, go to the people, live among them, learn from them, start with what they have, build on what they know, but of the best leaders, the people will say, we have done it ourselves. Hmm. If we can figure out ways to serve where we are invisible, where we are serving in a way that allows people dignity and gives them the opportunity to, quote unquote, do it themselves um, and to not take the credit, because we too often we want credit for what we've done. Um, we want to show a video. We want to make a publication. We want the news to pick up on it. Really, the best service, Jesus' service, is the kind that is invisible, um, where we serve from underneath, and we serve the least of these in a way that preserves their dignity, like Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery. I was, I was thinking of another Jesus example when he is preparing his disciples. He's about to be crucified. They're, they've just had the last meal, last supper. And what does he do? He takes the servant posture and serves them, and they're like, this is awkward. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it had gone so, the social structure had flipped so much. Yes. He had become the servant as a model to them. Yep. Even to the point of death on a cross. Yeah. Right? Right. And that's what we're called to do. Right. He created the cross. Yep. I mean, he's radical God. selfless service. Right. And it comes at a cost and it can be painful. Yes. You mentioned a few times uh, prisons. You are the director of the prison program right. here at NOBTS. Right. Um, some people are familiar with the prison program. Can you just give those who aren't a brief overview of 
what does that mean? Sure. <clears throat> so we have a, a prison problem in America. Yeah. We've got these big warehouses where we lock people up and throw away the key and think we've done justice. Meanwhile, inside the prison, we've got angry people who are being treated poorly, locked in, in cages, and given severely restricted movement rights. And then we don't do much beyond that. So a few years ago, the warden of Angola, which is the, the largest prison, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, largest prison in, in Louisiana, which had become a horrible, horrible place. And this is maximum security. Oh, yeah, beyond maximum security. Yeah. This is the yeah. place where where you go if you don't if you don't qualify for maximum security <laughs> elsewhere. This is the, the end point. Yeah. The warden came to NOBTS and asked if we would help them by establishing a, a Bible school. And so we did. And over the years, this Bible school has become a training ground for church planters. And so we have uh, a bunch of missionaries who have gone to other prisons, but we also have church planters inside this prison that have established churches, not just Southern Baptist churches, a variety of churches, but have planted 20-some-odd churches inside prison walls. Hmm. Now, I think of prison as being like a closed mission field. Often we go to mission weeks and a person is introduced as a missionary from a country that's an undisclosed location because it's a closed mission field. Well, prison's not unlike that. There's literal walls around it. You can't just walk inside a prison and preach to people. It literally is a closed mission field, often where Jesus is stifled. And so we have trained insiders uh, guys that are going to be there for the rest of their lives, that are now planting churches, but that live in the next cell over from it, some of the worst it, of the worst. And these are people that earn their spot there. Oh, these are these are people that that these have are committed convicts. murders and right. rapes, and but have come to Jesus mm-hmm. and are interested in seeing uh, not just lives transformed, but an entire prison system transformed. And so we are educating leaders in a process that we call moral rehabilitation, um, a way of creating not just changed lives, but a changed place. So one day at one of our graduations, the warden pulled me aside and said, you know, Kevin, we haven't had a fist fight in here in a week. Hmm. Now, now, 6,300 of the worst inmates in all of America locked up in one place without a fist fight in a week? That's transformation. And so we've replicated that uh, six times over and helped all over the country others replicate the process. There was a book written about this. This is just coming to my mind just now. Um, I don't remember the title of it. It's called The Angola Prison Seminary. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. How long has this been going on? We started the program at Angola in 1995. Mm. It's been going on for quite some time. Dr. Kelly, Chuck Kelly, uh, current chancellor now, you know, as he has announced his retirement, um, so he is now chancellor as we begin to search for a new uh, president. Um, he um, did he start this program or he was the one? He was the one. Okay, this is what I thought. He started this program, and <clears throat> we are currently NOBTS is in how many prisons? Six. Six prisons. Mm-hmm. And so, do you ever see that? Yes. Okay. Um, so let me ask you a question. Those are those are those are amazing testimonies. You know what the warden says and, yep. and these these kinds of things. What have you learned personally as you've 
like kind of taken that next level step of, of yep. being in this, being involved in this? So what I've what I've learned in the past couple of years is I've really been hands on with this since I've been at NOBTS. This is my fifth year here. Mm-hmm. Is that we have a culture of retribution mm. that we believe that when people do wrong, we should lock them up. We should punish them mm. for their crimes. And not only during their time of incarceration, but once they come out, they have to check a box that says, have you ever committed a felony, which means it's trouble getting a job. Mm-hmm. They cannot get student loans. They become ineligible for student loans, so they can't retool themselves to become educated. They cannot live in public housing because felons are not allowed in public housing. And so when they come home, often their families have to move out of public housing and have difficulty finding alternative housing. Mm-hmm. And lest they would want to change the system, they cannot vote because their voting rights are taken away. And so for the rest of their lives, they are being punished for the crime they committed. And this is not fair. What really needs to happen is, is, is a kind of, of life transformation where a guy goes into prison and comes out a productive mm-hmm. citizen. Punishing people doesn't do that. And, and here's an example. Imagine yourself on your job. And all your boss says is what you've done wrong. You work harder and harder and harder to try to earn at least a pat on the back, an attaboy or something, but all you get is negative criticism. Mm. How motivating is that? Mm. You certainly don't want to stay on that job. Mm -hmm. You begin looking for another job. Mm -hmm. This is what we do to prisoners in America. Mm. We treat them as, as these outcasts, not just for the time they're in, but when they get out as well. Mm-hmm. We have got to do something better in America. We've got to figure out a way to, not even to rehabilitate, but to restore these guys to a kind of, and women, to a kind mm-hmm. of citizenship that's productive and meaningful. Okay, so let me ask you a question about that. Um, because it is often called the Office of Corrections. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what you see on that van that you pass mm-hmm. on the bridge whenever, you know. Um, a person rapes and murders, you know, a child. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just really horrific, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we do with them? Well, that's, now that's a deep, deep question. Sure. I mean, I, and I understand. And, and, and I you've, understand. Also, you've also picked the absolute worst possible I'm case. Being, I'm just being—I mean, because I think a lot of people get stuck here, right? They, there has to be some kind of punishment— of some sort, right? Doesn't there? Because they've done something bad. I mean, in other words, like, what do we do with bad people in society? We want them to become good people. Well, here's the question. And this is, is a real question. You I know, have. it's a fair question because yeah. because other people are thinking that as well. But what we often do is we go to the worst case, uh, a, a pedophile, sure. to to justify you know this kind of punishment that we give. Often, as a, when I used to be a therapist in my earlier career, people would come to me and say, how do I punish my kids? Mm. And the problem with that question is, it, it's asking about, really it's asking about, can I spank my kids? <laughs> and so it's asking about, how do I correct my kids' behavior by dissuading them in a vehement way from ever doing that again? Mm-hmm. Locking people up with a bunch of other pedophiles is probably not the best way, right? So, so an example is, 
I have a man um, in my in our program here at, at NLBTS at Angola who's a brilliant man. I mean, like when I taught a class there mm-hmm. and he was in the class, he was way smart. He was asking questions that I just didn't have answers to. I, I just tell him, stop asking those questions. Right. I don't have, A, don't have answers, and B, it's beyond the scope of this class. Right. Um, so he's brilliant. And he made a stupid, stupid, he tried to carjack a car to get money to buy drugs. And the woman refused to get out of the car, so he drove off with her in it. And then was so confused and drug-addled that he didn't know what to do that he drove her to his house, which just happened to be several states away. So now he's not only carjacked, but he's kidnapped, and he's driven away with the woman. And he gets into prison, finds Jesus, gets transformed, um, and has this long, long sentence. And this is a guy now that's perfectly capable of being productive, that really has had the kind of life change that we're looking for. But we, because of our punishment mentality, have given him the sentence that he is going to have to fulfill. Now, I'm glad he's in prison because the work that he's doing there is transformative. But I'm not glad he's in prison because because he's learning a lesson. He's already learned all the lessons he needs to learn. So let me ask you a question. He he stole the car. He stole the woman as a result. A few states over... They caught him. End of story. Now he's in prison. Yep. He 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 got to like this maximum security prison for that. Yep. Is this normal? Yep. I mean, you'd be surprised the 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 things that are happening inside of prison. There's a lot of mental health issues and a lot of drug related issues. That if we had better mental health services, like the number one health provider, mental health provider in the city of New Orleans is our Orleans Parish Prison. Um, <laughs> Because that's where people go. I mean, they do stupid stuff and they get thrown in jail and, yeah. and they get on medications. And right. It's the way we treat people in New Orleans, uh, treat people for mental health issues. And a, a huge number of crimes are committed by people that are under the influence of drugs and are trying to satisfy a drug habit. That if we treated, uh, if we treated drugs instead of incarcerating people, we might have lower numbers in prison mm. and uh, fewer felons mm-hmm. you know, who get out and then are stuck on the fringes of society because they're labeled for the rest of their lives a felon. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. That's very helpful for my understanding because, you know, I went to that worst case scenario. Um, but if that's not common, now obviously <clears throat> that scenario needs to be dealt with right. in some way. Right. But but I think what I hear you saying is that scenario is not really uniform. That scenario is very different. Yet they're all put in a uniform situation. And now, now, even that situation, though, let's let's use the worst case. Is is the best way to treat pedophilia locking somebody in jail? I mean, is that really going to accomplish the end that we want to accomplish? Because so the guy does his time and comes out. Guess what? He's still a pedophile. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really addressed the issue. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure out a way to restore people. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a really tough thing for us to think of in America. We we don't think of restoring people back to full citizenship. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got to figure out. Mm-hmm. And for politicians, it's easy to say, "I'm tough on crime." It's not easy to say, "Let's reform prisons. Let's fix this mess we've made." Why? I don't understand. Why is that so hard? You get elected to office being soft on crime. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So um, people listening, what do they do? Um, what is their role in all of this? 
you know, Jesus calls us to, to a kind of radical servanthood. Mm-hmm. He calls us to take up our cross daily and follow him. He calls us to be living sacrifices. And I think we have become content in America, unlike other places where people really pay a huge cost for being a Christian. We've become content with a kind of superficial Christianity. One where if we do our personal Bible study, our personal quiet time, go to church on Sunday and, and witness three or four times a week to, people, to non-believers, but we fulfilled our Christian duties. But we really have not understood what it means to be a living sacrifice or to take up our cross daily and follow him. I had a psychiatrist friend once say that the problem with living sacrifices is they can crawl back off the altar. Mm. And I think all too often, because, because in America our kind of Christianity is more of a cultural Christianity, that we really don't understand the sacrifices that we have to make for the sake of the gospel. Mm. Um, Jesus didn't come to bring peace, he said, but bring a sword. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that following Jesus comes at a cost. In a cultural Christianity, we don't really pay that cost. Um, and so I think one of the things that we have to do is become those, those sacrificial lambs. We have to learn mm-hmm. what it really means to submit radically to Jesus. And that's going to mean that we have to do things like become agents of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter mm-hmm. 5. We have to become agents of, of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, first, it means to be reconciled to Christ, and so mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you know Jesus. But second, it means to reconcile others to Jesus. And mm-hmm. so while we sometimes are satisfied with sharing the four spiritual laws, Sometimes it really means engaging in depth relationship with people that are different from us. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of radical sacrifice where we step out of our comfort zone and get to know people that are different. The prisoner, the alien, the widow, the orphan, the naked, the hungry, all of whom we are called by Scripture to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of. True religion is this, to um, look after the widow in her distress and to keep oneself from from being polluted by the world. We've done such a good job of keeping ourselves from being polluted, but we haven't done a good job of looking after the least of these, mm-hmm. my brothers and sisters. That requires a kind of cultural humility where we put aside all the things that we believe about America mm-hmm. and begin to ask the questions of those that are different from us, what don't I understand? Yeah. And then when we hear answers that are really difficult and hurtful, and, and make us cry at night mm. um, than to act on that. Mm. This has been very fascinating. Uh, this, is, this is a great interest of mine, and I feel like we could go uh, an hour or two more on this, but uh, thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on the podcast. It's what happens when you get a Christian sociologist. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Hey, it's Gary and Joe here again. Would you do us a favor? If you like this podcast, Go to iTunes and leave us a review. This would mean the world to us. Thanks.